So why Romans 4? Why are we at where we're at? Ben, as you know, has been preaching to you guys through the book of Genesis. Um, And Genesis has covered some themes that have been tough. And I think Ben has been very gracious to me today um, because last week he had to preach on the topic of circumcision and coming up is Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> and he, I think he was wise in saying um, maybe the, the tougher themes of potentially church discipline should come from the senior pastor and not our youth guy. And so <laughs> I just really appreciate that. Um, and so we're in Romans chapter 4. But in doing so, we are keeping some continuity um, because as you look at Romans 4 today, you'll see um, that we're pointing back with a large part of this text at Abraham, at the patriarch that we've been spending the last couple weeks really getting to know as we've been getting through the book of Genesis. So there's continuity. It was intentional that Ben picked Romans 4, uh, and it was wise of him to uh, not have me doling out the harder things of circumcision and church discipline. So I appreciate that. Um, as we get into Romans 4 this morning, I kind of want to just let you know, if you're a note taker, um, I really appreciate you. I haven't always been a note taker in my life. I've kind of been the, just get through the moments and, and, and get through it with charisma type guy. But in my, um, more recent years, I've been really, um, learning a lot from the way Ben preaches. And I just really appreciate that he gives you kind of the text just moving through the text. And so... I kind of want to give you a head start as you warm up those pens this morning to know um, where we're going to be in Scripture. So if you're one of the people that kind of likes to move around in Scripture, um, you can follow me. And then also I'll just give you the the five points that I'm going to hit right up front so that you kind of can look for those as we go through this journey together this morning. We're going to go through Genesis, obviously, right? Genesis chapter 15. We're going to hit themes of that one. That makes sense. Psalm 32 Um, This scripture is going to point back directly to a psalm of David in Psalm 32. So um, if you want to get there, you can. But the two verses that we're going to be focusing on are in Romans 4. Ephesians 2, John chapter 5, as we talked about the Samaritan woman a little bit this morning. And then primarily, we're going to be in Romans chapter 4. And when I say primarily, honestly, the Sunday, the heavy lifting is in scripture. There's not a lot of my thoughts uh, that are going to be coming out of me. So if you only want to turn to one page, I would just turn to Romans chapter 4. I'll be primarily reading to you this morning out of ESV. So that's all your precursors. Now you're stuck with me for the next 22 minutes. So here we go. Um, Scripture says this in Romans chapter 4, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord has not and will not count his sin. Let's pray. Father God, I am overjoyed at the opportunity to um, come before a body of people that I have grown to love deeply this morning and to have an opportunity to speak. But Father, this can't be my words. This has to be yours. And so I pray, Father, that you would just help me to disappear, that the text would speak for itself, that you would impress on the hearts that you are trying to speak at so loudly this morning, your message. Father, this is a message of the gospel. This is a message of good news. This message points at Jesus. 
Help us to hear that this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we go. Here are your five points this morning. Um, We're going to make a distinction that righteousness comes apart from good works. That's point one. Righteousness comes apart from good works. Point two. Righteousness is a blessing that comes from the Lord. Righteousness is a blessing that comes from the Lord. Point three. The blessing of righteousness is for all. Probably going to be one of my more favorite points this morning. The blessing of righteousness is for all. Number four. The blessing of righteousness comes through faith. In fact, that'll be the predominant theme in the whole text, that righteousness is from faith. But point four will be the blessing of righteousness comes through faith. And point number five, our faith is in God. Our faith is in the moment of salvation that was purchased on the cross. And so as we get started, we're going to look at Romans chapter 4. We're going to lean into the text and see what it has to say. So Romans 4, chapter 1, if you guys would take a moment to turn there. The point being righteousness comes apart from good works. And it says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. I love that Paul, who is the author of Romans, is taking a guy from the Old Testament that, like, on the surface, we as a church might look to and go, Abraham was faithful, but that the Jewish audience would look at and go, man, Abraham sure had the, the tendency to blow it. And so here, Paul is saying, look at this patriarch at our faith. Yeah, he had some works, and he could certainly boast in those. But that is not where his faith is coming. Faith is coming from righteousness. And then it goes on to say, Now to one, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as gift, but as his due. And I think that's an important verse for me this morning because as I kind of tee up this sermon for you guys to think about, it is going to come across a little bit as a sermon that kind of sounds like I don't have to participate in doing good works. I just get everything. And honestly, yes, you do just get everything. But there is enough here in this that one verse alone to say that works have merit, that if you do the work, you're going to receive the due. And certainly there's enough in Scripture, if we look at Jesus' teaching, to say that he is asking us to be obedient out of his own mouth. In John chapter 14, he says, If you love me, keep my commandments. And if we look at James, the brother of Jesus, and his writings, certainly we could see that faith without works is dead. But this is not a sermon about works. This is a sermon about how righteousness, how as our Heavenly Father justifies us, as He sees us as holy, we are not working for it. We cannot achieve it. We cannot acquire it. We cannot purchase it on our own effort. 
And so I think it's important that we make that distinction this morning. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And then just as Paul took a look at Abraham and will continue to look at Abraham, he also draws to another major figure in the Jewish faith, David, and says, if Abraham blew it, certainly you might recall that David blew it. And he says, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And then we record David's words from Psalm 32 here in Romans, and it says, David said, Blessed are those who lo- whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. And that is, for us, point two, that if righteousness is not from our works, righteousness is from God. Because then it says, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So I've given you point one, righteousness comes apart from good works. And point two, that righteousness comes from God. But I really want to get into point three. And point three is that righteousness is for all. So before I do that... um, Move on down in Romans just a little bit, and we'll find ourselves now in verse 9, and it says this. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or for the uncircumcised? Thank you, Ben, for preaching on that last night so that we might recognize then that this is talking about a sign. For we say that faith, in verse 9, was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? And then Paul answers, it was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that had been, or that had he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. And then, as Paul kind of works you through those word gymnastics, he gives clarity to that, and he says, kind of at the end of verse 11, the purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So Paul is taking you back into the story and reminding you that there was a covenant between Abraham and God, and the covenant had a sign, and the sign was circumcision. And that covenant was Abraham, I promise to you, to you, Abraham, that I will make you the father of of many. And this sign is a sign that people are identified through you as your lineage, 
and others will be brought in, into this without the Son. And we wrestle with this, and we take just great delight in the fact that that means that this is not a just for the Jewish nation promise, but that as Paul is articulating, that it is for the Gentile as well. And that is a great blessing because that means that you and I are receivers of the same blessing. If you've been around me uh, in the last couple of years, or you know me, like if you really know me, you'll know that I often preach John 5, I just or John 4. I just love the story of the Samaritan woman. And it marries itself really well to this text, this all-people text, um, for a few reasons. Jesus, in the text, in John chapter 4, says that he has to go from Judea to Galilee, and that he has to go by way of Samaria. So Jesus is going to take a route in John chapter 4 through a country that normally people would go around. If you stop and think about that, you recognize for a moment that if Jesus is the same God that Colossians 1.15 talks about as hanging stars, that intentionally, if he can figure all that out, him going through Samaria is not an accident. Instead, it's an appointment. And Jesus walks through this nation, and he walks not only through a nation that would have been comfortable, but rather through a people group that would have been hated by the Jews. The Samaritans would have been like the half-race. They just weren't getting it. To a Jew, they were stinky and defiled. Jesus is walking through the heart of their country. He's going to meet a woman at a well. Same Jesus who can hang stars is going to get to a well. The point of the day is not circumstance if we're talking about God who knows all things. He gets to a well, and at the well, lo and behold, a woman not circumstance, predicted by God, intentional by God, that she would be there. He's a Jew. She's a Samaritan. They should not have common ground to love each other. Jesus looks at the woman and he says, woman, get me a drink of water. And she says, how is it you, a Jew, would ask me, a Samaritan woman, for water? He says, you knew who it was that asked you for water, we would be somewhere. And then he proves to her in one of those most beautiful moments that only Jesus can do that he knows everything about her. He says, can you fetch me your husband? She says, I have no husband. He says, you're right. In fact, you've had five husbands. And the guy you're sleeping with right now isn't even your husband. I don't think Jesus said that to her to be blatantly hurtful. I think he said that to her to say, I already know everything there is to know about you, and I am asking you to interact with me. That's powerful. And not only does he ask her for water in exchange, he offers her living water. He offers her everything. He says, woman, I love you so much that I want you to find life in me. 
For me, that is one of the most powerful passages in all of Scripture. But doesn't it, doesn't it compare to Romans chapter 4 when we look at all and we can recognize that the Savior had no distinction for race. He had no distinction for gender. That his barriers were not our barriers that for him, all people is all people. As Revelations would say, every tribe, every race, every nation, every gender. And I have to do this, if you would just go one more chapter into John 5, from John 4 to John 5. Isn't the next story a guy at a well who's physically been laying there for like 36 years? So not only does Jesus demonstrate that if I love race and culture and gender, I also do not find value in your physical condition. Here's a guy at the well, and Jesus says, do you want to get well? Do you want to be healthy? Of course, Jesus already knew the answer, but he asks the guy, nonetheless, to demonstrate his authority, not just over the physical, which we see in that, but also the spiritual, I have authority to make you well inside. And I just want you guys to hold those texts as you reason and wrestle through Romans 4, when we see for all people, that we wouldn't just narrow that to all people that we're comfortable with, that the uncircumcised and the circumcised is everybody that has the ability. I just, I'm just blown away by that. So point one, righteousness is not from good works. Point two, righteousness is from the Lord. Point three, the righteousness of God is for all people who believe. I'm going to read to you now a little longer passage. Uh, I want to get to point number four. And that is, the promise of righteousness is realized through faith alone. So if it is for everybody, and the last point, nobody has to work for it. Faith alone is how it's purchased. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null, and the promise is void. Isn't that really true in our lives that like if we were to try to hold ourselves accountable to keeping the law, clearly we could find in ourselves a fault. We could not keep the whole law. So it can't be by keeping the law. Verse 15, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Verse 16, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father, Abraham, of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead, 
and calls into existence the things that do not yet exist. Verse 18 might be one of my favorites. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No, unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. I cannot read that text and not put my own life circumstances in. And I don't think you guys can read that text and not put your own life circumstances in there. Don't you just love that Paul is pointing to Abraham, who just like us, did not always nail it? And yet Abraham still had hope. I just think like life is going to throw at some of us cancer and life is going to throw at us depression and life is going to throw at us death and life is going to throw at us taxes. We can count on that. And life is going to throw on us financial heartache and life is going to throw on us children who don't expect to be turning out the way that they're turning out. And life is going to X, Y, and Z. It's just going to happen. And it says that that rocked Abraham, when that happened to him, unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. Good. If Abraham can waver, that gives me some freedom to waver. Like, man, if Abraham doesn't have to nail it, whew, that's awesome, right? I mean, that's one of those moments for me where I'm like, I cannot not see myself in this text. Like, I'm the chief of all sinners, right? Not always nailing it. Things are not always going the way that they should. But my distinction is that my hope is in the new covenant. And we'll get to that. But just as Abraham hoped in the promise that he would be the father of many nations, even when at times he was making stupid choices, and at times, circumstances were all around him. He still hoped in that covenant and that promise that the God of the universe had made with him. And that is powerful if you put yourself in that text. So point four, the promise of righteousness is realized through faith, through your hope alone. In God, guaranteeing to you that he will do what he said he will do. In point five, as we just fly through the sermon, which is probably okay on a Memorial Sunday. The promise, the point, is that our faith is in Christ. See, Christ is the purchase of our salvation. 
We are not under the Old Testament covenant. We are not under the Old Testament law. We have a new covenant. And that covenant is the body and blood of Jesus Christ. That we have a promise that Christ and his death and resurrection purchased for us life. A new hope. And that our faith in that is what tributes to us righteousness. You can't go out and purchase salvation for yourself. You can't manipulate the outcome anyway. Righteousness is purchased through Jesus Christ. And our faith is in the belief that that is what it is. I want to circle back to Romans chapter 3 because it um, kind of makes this point. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Can't earn it. He just wants to give it to you. He purchased the gift of salvation. He purchased your righteousness. It is a gift. And then it says, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sinners. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So there it is. Our faith in his Son gives glory to the Father. It proves that the Father is the one who can declare us justified, and it puts honor in his Son who has accomplished the work. It does nothing for us to earn salvation other than for us to say, God, I believe you did it. I believe you took your son and you murdered him on a cross so that you might demonstrate your wrath and so that by it you might also demonstrate your love and that you raised your son from the dead to demonstrate your power over all life, and all death, which is produced by sin. And that if I can acknowledge your love for me in this magnificent way, and I can put my faith in your Son, that you will give me salvation because of your Son, not because of me. 
I can't do it. You can't do it. Jesus did it. And the Father sees the Son. That's what propitiation is hinting at, that the Son is the substitute for our sin. And that the Father poured his wrath on the Son so that, as David can write in Psalm 32, blessed are those who are forgiven because of Jesus. One more text. Ephesians chapter 2, 8, and 9. I am so grateful for a mom who just dragged my butt to church and made me go to Awana. And this is kind of a shameless plug for the Awana program, but so much scripture is stuck in here because my mom dragged me to that, that you should drag your kids to Awana. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says this, For it is by grace. And then Awana made me learn this, if it isn't even more fun to tote on Awana. The definition of the word grace is God's free gift. Or another definition that Awana had, God giving me a free gift I don't deserve. So now we have the definition. For it is by grace, or it is a free gift. For it is by grace that you have been saved through your faith. And this is not of yourself. This is a gift from God so that no man can boast. I just... I, don't, I just am blown away by that. I have about three minutes left, and then I'm going to try to get you guys out of here. And in the next three minutes, I just want to really give a presentation of the gospel. I don't, give a, uh, I don't get a lot of opportunity to, to come before you on a Sunday, and so um, when I'm up here, I just, it's on my heart that this is kind of something that, hey, you got this one opportunity, you should take it. And my presentation to you would go like this. The gospel simply means the good news, that Jesus Christ died on your behalf. That if you recognize that you are a sinner and that your offense is against an eternal God, and that as a sinner, Romans 23 tells us we are all sinners, that Romans 6.23 tells us that the punishment should be death, that something should pay for that sin because God is holy and he is just. But then 6.23 says, but grace, right? For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Having heard the good news that Jesus wants to pay for your sins, see then in John 4 that there is no circumstance, there is no identity by which you have given yourself that would disqualify you from God walking across the desert to offer you living water. You are a sinner. God has made a way for your sins to be paid for through his son. There is nothing that you can do to be outside of the bounds of God's love. And if you don't believe me, the text this morning highlights two guys, Abraham and David. By both rights, sinners of all sinners. David murdered a guy. David had an affair with that guy's wife, 
knocked her up and had a baby and murdered the guy. And God redeemed David. There's nothing, there's nothing that will keep you outside of being able to receive the gospel. Your acknowledgement of that is faith. You're saying, God, I believe that what you did was for me and that there is nothing I can do to earn it. But I believe. I believe that was for me. And faith is what produces righteousness. When you believe, righteousness is accredited to you. When you put your trust and belief in the Lord Almighty, the text that we have spent 20 minutes in is screaming, just screaming at you that that is where righteousness comes from. I mean, my Bible says in many of its like big, like, chapter headlines, things like this. Abraham, justified by faith. The promise, realized through faith. Peace with God through faith, right? These are the titles overseeing the chapters. It's there. It's in the text. And you have a right to receive that. Some churches that I've been to do this fancy altar call thing. I'm kind of weirded out by that sometimes. And then I think you might put your emphasis in that moment and not between your heart and God's heart. But if you're here this morning and you're just like, man, I know that God died for me. Acknowledge him in your own way. Make a declaration to God in your own time. God, I believe it. And start new. I also just want to encourage you that have made that commitment that the end of chapter 4 is for the hope, the believing and believing and believing. And when the railroad tracks and when life gets left and they get right and things get tough, that if you have declared that, that the promise is still real. God has saved you through his son, Jesus Christ, and that he will come again, and that our hope is not in the now, but is in the yet to come. Let's pray. Father, I am over the moon that the text then picked for me was really the gospel, that I had an opportunity to just be up here and tell the good news. Father, do not let our heads be so thick or our ways so arrogant that we cannot see that your good news is for us. Father, you love us. Romans 8 promises us that there is no height, there is no depth, there is no power, there is no dominion, there's nothing in all of creation that can separate us from the love that is for us in Christ Jesus. Father, there are people here today that need, 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 need to just own it. Say, God, all right, enough is enough. I believe that your son died for me. I believe that you want me. I believe, Father, that if I trust in your Son, you will see me as you see your Son. Father, we thank you for 
the beautiful sunshine. We thank you for the joy that we are about to have in your creation. And I pray this morning that as we depart from this place, that you would just continue pressing upon our hearts your word. But Father, that you would help us as a people to delight in some well, well, well needed sunshine. And we just praise you that that's out there this morning. Father, thank you for the opportunity to preach. We just pray these things in your son's name. Amen.